This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Available now from Prosthetic Records, the new album Heaven That Dwells Within from Vancouver's Worm Witch. Metal Sucks says, The riffs that dwell within Worm Witch's sophomore album can't be praised enough. And yes, Brooklyn Vegan praises Heaven That Dwells Within is still an album with the power to unite punk and metal fans like Wormwitch debut was. But Wormwitch sound way more evil this time around. Too many plaudits to count, but Invisible Orange says, once again, manifesting their whimsically archaic brand of frostbitten evil, Canadian black and roll crust punk crossover group Wormwitch has now unveiled their second full-length record, Heaven That Dwells Within. And Decibel Wax's Worm, which continues to lean into the black metal influences, finding a riff-based sound that has a strong atmosphere while remaining in the listener's face. Worm Witch, Heaven That Dwells Within, is available now on LP, digital, and CD, and they are on tour all year. I want to remind you guys that this show is sponsored by Rockabilia. Need to stock up on some of your favorite band's merch? Go to rockabilia.com and put some on your wish list. They're the one-stop shop for all your band merch needs. Need to buy a gift for someone and know what bands they're into? Pick up something from Rockabilia. You won't be disappointed with their selection, and you can get 10% off with the code PCJabberJaw. So head on over to rockabilia.com and use the promo code PCJabberJaw and save 10% today. It's the Metal Sucks Podcast with your hosts, Petter Speich, Brandon Hahn, and Jocelyn Sharp. Metal Sucks Podcast. Hey, what is going on, everybody? It is I, your host, Petter Speich, and I am always joined by... My name is Brandon Gooch Hahn, and you and your friends can find me on Twitter and Instagram at your buddy Gooch. And... I know sometimes people picture us talking to each other like in their head, and I want everyone to know that when Gooch says his name, he makes eye contact with no one and looks into the abyss. Because I'm talking to them. (laughs) I'm talking to the abyss that is the internet. I'm Jocelyn Sharp. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp. And guys, follow me at Rise to Offend on Facebook and Twitter. Rise to Offend official on Instagram. This week, we're continuing on with our industry folks that we've been telling you guys we're going to talk to for a while. I get to finally chat with Amy Ciaretto of Adam Slitter PR is a heavy metal publicist. She's been in the industry for a long time. It's going to be an exciting chat. You guys definitely hang in there for it. I'm excited. You're excited. Whoa, we're check excited. these nips. Oh, really? I don't want to. Put your shirt back on. Uh, <laughs> no, come on. What's these that? Are, these nipples are expiring. What, what movie is that from? It's not funny, though. Huh. Oh, Check. that's from Basketball. You just dropped Basketball on Did us. I? Isn't Did that you? what that's from? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I can't quote that movie anymore because I've had sex. <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. <laughs> that's what happens. Jaws gets a little bit of D, boom. One memory leaves the brain. Comedy doesn't seem as fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is real. And we also got an email challenge, which we will take on very shortly, guys. But first and foremost, let's just talk about... We're just going to talk about one news story this week on the Metal Sucks News. Not, we're not going to do a lot because this email challenge was a little... A little intense for us. A little bit, but not too bad. The story we want to talk about, guys, is uh, Chris Fenn from Slipknot. Recently, the business manager of Slipknot did state that he was just a hired employee for all those years. Yeah. That's the meanest thing you could possibly say. Yeah, I mean, I that guy's been on I tour like, with them for a man. long time. He, 20 years touring. The guy's been doing the band forever. I, again, we, we discussed in previous episodes that he hasn't, you know, done this lion's share of other stuff. But, like, yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, though, is when you're it's the third rough. guy playing the keg... 
You know what I mean? When you're the yeah, when you're the when you're the third triangle player, it's like, dude, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to minimize the guy's I don't contribution. Think he, here's, here's the thing is, I, I totally did. I don't think you can minimize his contributions in a live setting. That's yeah. all I'm right. It's it's necessary. He's on that stage. It's necessary yeah. to the cacophonous artistry of what Slipknot does, right? Cacophonous. I know. Look at that Look vocabulary. At that word. Hold Read it. a book this weekend. You're welcome. Give me a second to Google that <laughs> shit. But anyways, by that, that's probably like that's what the attorneys do. And you got to keep in mind, like attorneys are going to want to get as much money as they possibly can from you know Clown and, and Corey Taylor, and they probably can spend more money than Chris Fenn. So it's going to be a bunch of nonsense for a long time. Like obviously, someone is lying blatantly. And that's what sucks. One side or the other is just straight lying. I don't think, I don't think Chris Fenn's lying at all. Well, I, don't, well, I don't think anybody's really lying because if you really think about it, I mean, it's like, yeah, saying that the guy's a hired gun is really messed up. I think that's, it's because, I mean, he was with the band for 20 it's years, dude. so minima- minimizing, like, all of his struggle, all the time he's had to come in and, like. M- may I say that you said you don't think he's lying, but you just said saying he's a hired gun is is a lie. Cool. But I'm just saying, I don't think, I don't know how that's a lie, though. I mean, it's like... Oh, you're saying it, legally I, I, it may be true, but we, you think in his mind he thought he was that? No, not at all. Do you think that anybody said, hey, Chris, you're a hired gun, so know your role? No. Okay. But well. at the same time, though, when you're not part of the songwriting process and they're like, hey, give this guy a couple of blocks to bang together. And I mean, that's... Yeah, what's the Slipknot trial period? Is it most jobs like two weeks? Yeah. Like, you have to do 27 years and then you yeah, get, this guy, say this, get this guy a washboard, you know? <laughs> and I'm not defending anybody. I'm like, I'm going to try to take this down the middle. I think we all are. I, I view that as mean. Uh, you view that as mean. Well, it's legal. Isn't this what lawyers do to each other? They're, they're going to make it really ugly in public. They're looking for a legal loophole. Yeah. They're looking for something because this is all at this point that when you come to like IP stuff, like intellectual property rights and, and like there's so much stuff that's gray area, right? It's not like other things in business where you can say like, this is the law and that's like, that's what they're looking for right now. They're looking for some kind of legal loophole that they can get out of any kind of liability. Mm. And it, it makes sense. Maybe they did everything in 1999 because he's been in the band from the jump maybe they did everything where they put themselves in the forefront of the labeling of the band and and all that stuff but the fact is is that he's been in the band for 20 years it doesn't it doesn't take that away from the fact that regardless of what his role was to call call him a hired hand i think is is it's underhanded it's It's mean and it's a low blow yeah it is but this is what courts do i think i think attorneys just do things like this so they can keep getting money so that that's their response to to i don't know that's hypothetically speaking though we don't know what's going on (laughs) it's not hypothetical because if a lawyer says this in a courtroom the way it works is that the lawyer will respond to chris fenn's lawsuit he's the prosecutor he has to prove everything these are the defendants so they're going to respond to the prosecution and then he has to respond to them the more they respond to each other, the more money the lawyers make. Yeah, they're and they, trying to they're gonna, they're gonna dance around the issue and the issue and the issue with just a bunch of stuff until it's all settled either in court or probably behind closed doors, which is most likely will happen. That's and if why this is in public court, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. So it's they're all gonna do everything they can to make sure that they've they've showed that the defense has no defense basically. and on top of that i mean this is what rich people do all the time i mean they basically just let things go to litigation and more lawyer fees add up more lawyer fees add up and then eventually the person with the least amount of money goes all right i gotta tap out yeah uh, absolutely and that that is that's absolutely and that's what i'm trying to say this kind of response where he's got to be like i have to prove i'm you know a permanent member of this band i've been in for 20 years is kind of ridiculous, but the lawyer fees will add up, and yeah. that's that's kind of a, a business tactic. And again, you don't want to look at Corey Taylor or Clown as the guys. This is what lawyers do. Now it's in the hands of lawyers. See what I'm saying? It's but not, at the same it's not time, between guys, so it's just going to get kind of 
gnarlier as it goes, I guess. It just sucks because the lawyer is speaking on their behalf, and it, no matter what, it's always going to make Corey and Klein look bad. Yeah, it makes them look like they're the ones who believe those things. Yeah, because, I mean, when I mean, you got to understand, if a lawyer, the lawyer is going to present his argument to them, and they're going to have to be the ones that sign off on it. Yes, but in all fairness, like, they're, if, if they go straight, let's just say this, and, and we don't know, but if they go straight to him and say this is a lump sum, or whatever, which is eventually what a yeah, settlement will be. Court, yeah. Maybe they don't have to do this for a long time, and maybe we don't have to read this nonsense and just look forward to the new record that they're putting out this year in tour. I hope Chris Fenn just gets his money. I mean, it's like I don't want to see I don't want to see Corey and Clown just get totally raked over the coals. But at the same time, I mean, come on, man, the guy was in the band for twenty years. I mean, I understand he was like the third guy that played the keg, but you know, it's just like you know, I but mean, th- it, that's he, an assumption that he doesn't already have his money. Right. So we're taking a side. Maybe he already does, man. You know, I just don't like the fact that they're they're like hired gun. I don't like that statement alone. Like how of, dismissive of that is that's of twenty years yes. of effort. You know, yeah. can you imagine just like living your best life and like shaking your sweaty hair all the time and banging on your drum, and then one day somebody wakes up and goes, "Yeah, but you're just the." Yeah, you're just the guy with the nose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like Gary Holt is a hired gun and slayer. We get that. Jeff Hanneman passed away many years ago. But if someone told me Dave Lombardo was a hired gun and slayer when they had their beef back in the day, I'd be like, uh, you know. Is Robert Trujillo considered a hired gun? I mean, yeah. Who knows? That that's deals between bands. Right. You know, I, we don't know that stuff. There's, a, there's probably a lot of people we wouldn't imagine be hired guns being hired guns in bands, you know? There's probably a lot of people like, wow, you know, but then there's going to be situations where like, yeah, that's kind of obvious that you're a hired gun. You're not an original member. This one's not obvious to me. He's an original member. That's part of Slipknot's appeal. It's the nine guys, regardless of playing a keg or what, you know, or writing whatever. the albums. Yeah. yeah. So all that stuff. But like if someone told me that the, the drummer in Slipknot, you know, who replaced Joey Jordison is a hired gun, I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, he totally is. That's what I'm saying. It makes total sense. So, anyways, moving on to our... Uh, we got an email, guys. Unleash the fan mail! <laughs> and this email, uh, they, hit, they hit me up at rise to offend at gmail.com. Feel free to. This guy writes, has been writing us for weeks and weeks and actually years now. We've been doing this. So, he's been a fan of both shows for a long time. But uh, he wrote us a couple weeks back when we did our greatest EPs of all time episode. So I'm just going to read his email. He did ask me not to say his name out loud, so I'll, I'll honor that, sir. You know, is it because if we say it three times, he'll show up behind us? It, it, his name is not Candyman. I just, <laughs> I mean, I can, I can verify it's not Candyman. Okay, Man. you can't verify that. Is it Bloody Mary? I'm not falling for that. <laughs> <laughs> Candyman. Three times in a mirror. Let's go. Beetlejuice. Hmm. How many times do you guys say Beetlejuice? Three, Three times. times. Oh, yeah. I love it. Okay. So it's not Candyman or Beetlejuice. Here's the email. I really enjoyed the greatest EP episode that you guys did, and I challenge you guys to possibly do another list. Challenge us. I don't expect it to be done on an episode, but just for my reference, well, your expectations have changed because we're doing it on the episode. Uh, being from Canada, I feel that our great contribution to metal doesn't infect the States or the rest of the world like it should. And since you guys are non-Canadian, I was wondering what bands reach you guys as great Canadian metal bands that you think are obscure or not known across the States. Hopefully one day you guys can interview someone from one of our great bands because I feel we don't get much love on the MS podcast. Okay. All right. Well, Bare naked ladies. Let's stop. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> So the question that I think we're getting is, what are our favorite bands from Canada that we would consider obscure and not globally known? Okay, so we're going to do a list of four for you. But I do want you to know, because we love fan interaction, and you've been a fan for so long and sent us so many emails. Next week on the Metal Sucks podcast, I will be interviewing one of Canadian's greatest bands for you, buddy. Okay, so the metal bands that we all decided on, everybody should know globally or across the world, is Devin Townsend, Voivod, 
Gorguts, Kryptosi, Cataclysm, Annihilator, The Agonist, and then we think Alyssa and Stu Block, who, you know, are in Arch Enemy and Iced Earth now, are great crossovers. So that's where we kind of feel the bands are well known. So we're going obscure now. All right, guys. So the first the first band that we think uh, deserves some credit here in the States. Now, once again, we're in Las Vegas, Nevada. So you guys have to realize we don't have the uh, the knowledge, really. So this is such an odd question, but we're going to go for it, man. So the first band I think that is extremely obscure that has been a great help to heavy metal that us people in the States might not know about, that's Neil Merriweather. And I'm going to play a song off the record, Kryptonite, that he put out back in 
song mm. made me want to just pour maple syrup. That down song's my throat. dope. I love that song. It's good. That's like a, like like uh, that's my I want to work out today, but I don't want to work out today song. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's my. I, I want, need I need like thunderous that, something to give me some that's kind of my, motivation. I want to I want to ride a moose into war okay, kind of song. That's huh? No. Oh, I get it. <laughs> So that's our number one obscure Canadian band that we think everybody in the state should know. Next band that we think may be obscure, maybe not, but I want to promote them anyway because they probably are the Canadian band I listened to the most uh, the last you know five ten years, and that's Woods of Epress. The song we're going to play is off Woods Four, the Green album. That's uh, back from two thousand nine. This is probably my favorite record they've done, and this song is called "Everything I Touch Turns to Gold and Then to Coal."
All right, guys, and we're back from that track. And I got to tell you, David Gold, he died back in 2011. Um, and then I know that he won a, a Juno Award posthumously for the, the, the fifth Woods record. But um, I still don't know if he's ever reached over the popularity. And since his passing, he died at like 31 years old, was so sad. He, to me, has always been the Canadian answer to Peter Steele. He sounds like typo negative. He has the same... I don't, I don't want to say style because it's completely original, but it's just the same vibe and feeling. So I hope if you guys don't know about that band out here in the States, you visit them right now. Woods of E-Press. Canadian Peter Steele. I'm still stuck on that. Well, that song, you know that song, Hey Peter? It'd be like, Hey, Peter. <laughs> hey, Peter. God damn it. <laughs> We'd like to formally apologize to no, all of our Canadian no. listeners. You guys, I'm going to hug Go- all of for you. For Gooch making an A I joke. I appreciate all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Do it again. Hey. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, you should get that as a drop. That should hey. be a drop. Hey, Peter. Hey, Peter. <laughs> All right, dude. So with that, guys, we're going to continue our list after the interview this month. Allegiant will release their new album, Apoptosis, via Metal Blade Records, a near-perfect symbiosis of technical, progressive, and melodic death metal. It is a record that is crushingly heavy as it is inventive, and it marks a significant leap forward in the band's songwriting. Make sure you purchase your copy today of Apoptosis now at MetalBlade.com slash Allegiant. Once again, MetalBlade.com slash Allegiant. So let's jump into the interview right now with Amy Ciaretto. Everybody, what is going on? It's Petter with the Metal Sucks podcast. On the phone, I have Amy Ciaretto. She's a publicist for many major acts that we love here, especially Kill Switch, Hate Breed. I've been trying to get Jamie Joss on the show forever, but that dude's too busy. Eventually, right? <laughs> we have to make that happen then. <laughs> Event, dude, he does three podcasts a week. I don't, I'm I'm scared to even ask to get him on the show at this point. That guy, that guy pumps out content. I'm impressed. If anybody makes me feel like I'm lazy, it's Jamie Josta. Um, he's a he's a hyperkinetic organism, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but being a publicist, so many people ask me so many questions about the industry, people, and how they get their foot in the door. So I love the origin story. So let me ask you that: How long have you been? in the music industry, first off, and what is your journey to where you're at today? Oh, good. Oh, goodness. Uh, good, very good, detailed question. And forgive me, because uh, I, like I said earlier, I have a cold, mm. so I'm just sitting over that flu slash, well, I don't know if it's the flu, it's cold, plague, whatever. Just uh, I'm all stuffed up, so sorry if I sound very nasally, because I don't usually sound like this. I was very lucky to know very, very young what I wanted to do. Um, I always wanted to be the person with the clipboard and the headset backstage making stuff happen. When I used to watch the MTV, like MTV VMAs when I was little, I used to watch it and think, I want to be back there, but I want to be the person that's running around that you would sometimes get a glimpse of backstage, you know, during commercials or when they were going to commercial or cutting commercial. I always knew that I wanted to be that person making something happen because I couldn't be the person on the stage making stuff happen because I didn't have that kind of talent or that kind of even ambition either. Um, you know, I wasn't interested in, in being an artist. I wanted to work with artists because I just, you know, I, I love music so much. I grew up with old, an older brother who was a big kiss and ECDC and Van Halen fan. And he used to sit with me and let me listen to his records on his record player. And that's how I got to music and started going to concerts when I was still single digits in age with my brother. So I always knew that I wanted to work with music and I was always a good writer. So I just started out writing about music when I was still in high school. Like most of my friends were just being idiots and then going to college and partying all the time. And, you know, I, uh, I was writing for magazines. I was writing music reviews and I found out, Oh, I could interview these bands and meet these bands that I love. And I would do interviews for them. And I would, for these local publications, which none of them exist anymore. They're all have long gone out of business. 
but um, they were all local papers and local magazines, monthlies, because I grew up right outside of Philly. So that's where um, I used to go see shows in the Trocadero and the Electric Factory and the First Unitarian Church. And I would interview bands and write about it. And I ran my school radio station, ran the school paper, interned at a music magazine. And then as soon as I graduated college, I got the job as the metal editor at CMJ, which was a college radio trade publication. You know, I started out as an editorial assistant and three months later, they gave me the metal section. And that was my first job out of college and probably my favorite job because I just got to write about metal all day and I loved it. And that's where I made a lot of contacts. And, you know, I was going to sometimes five to six shows a week, two shows a night. You know, I was hitting 200 to 250 shows a year sometimes. And then I, you know, met everybody and knew everybody very well at Roadrunner because I was always working with everybody there and writing about all the Roadrunner bands. And then a couple of job opportunities opened there and I turned them down twice. And then on the third opportunity, I, I took the job there in the radio department and I worked at Roadrunner for almost 13 years. So I think it was like 12, in that range, 12 to 13, something like that. I worked there for a very long time working with everybody from, you know, Killswitch, Slipknot, Nickelback, Hatebreed, Machine Head, Devil Driver, Meatloaf, Theory of a Dead Man, you know, tons and tons of amazing bands. Um, through a very long period there. And I still work with many of them to this day. So it was during that period, you know, the OOs where it was a lot of great bands came out of that place. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And that was the time when rock and metal, it was kind of on top for a long time. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. In terms of sales and like we saw it, you know, it was the kind of thing that made you want to run to your desk every day and get to work and see how the bands were doing and what you could do to like how the sales were doing every day and what you could do to make make it even better. It was a very, very, um, I still look at it and I don't think it can be touched. And everybody says, you know, it was the 90s, which obviously were iconic for Roadrunner, you know, with Sepultura and Typo Negative and Fear Factory and all those great, great bands, even all the death metal bands that came before in the 80s. Um, but just through the evolution of the company, my personal favorite era was like the late nineties with like VOD and shelter and stuff like that. But when I started working there, bands like Typo and Sepultura and Fear Factory were all in like their last album or they were breaking up or they were moving on. So Cold Chamber bands like that. I worked all those bands, but late period, you know, but I also started when Trivium and Slipknot and Killswitch are all coming up on their first and second records. And Machine Head, who was a long time, obviously, you know, carryover for a very long time Roadrunner. So that's like, you know, Stone Sour, stuff like that. We were, you know, we had a very, you know, I feel like that era was really commercially untouchable. You know, we had so many great bands. We had like Zach Wild for a, for a record. We had Dragon Force. You know, that's a band I worked with very closely that I loved and loved seeing them kind of just blow up and become a thing. So, it's a. I don't think that'll ever be replicated just because of how the music industry has changed. But that was a great time. That was some of the. I, you know, I be I became the adult that I am by working through working there. It was like the most formative years of my life. So, um, I have so many great memories of it. And you did mention that because of the music industry, you don't think it'll ever reach that same kind of echelon that it kind of hit at that point. But there were points every five or ten years where music and and rock and metal kind of reigned supreme, if I may. Do you feel that that time? is going to be a long ways away still? It's a pet. Well, commercial, I, I, I think I probably really met commercially. It was a mm-hmm. very successful period because bands like Killswitch were going gold and, and, and bands like, you know, um, you know, Hapri were still selling really well and Machine Head and stuff. 
But it, I do think generally and genre and stylistically speaking that rock music does have its ebbs and flows. I don't think it ever goes out of, you know, because people who love rock music and love metal, they're always going to, they're, they're loving it no matter whether people, everybody else loves it or hates it. But I do think that that period, if you look at it just historically, like bands like Killswitch and Dillinger Escape Plan were getting on television, late night TV. You know, you don't really see that right now because that's just not where that, element is right now you know just in it it could come back again sure why not there could be one band that just kind of blows the roof off and makes people who make these decisions more interested in, in heavy aggressive music but you know it could have been or it could have just been a moment in time that was really special and kind of really taking off you know lamb of god all those bands yeah. but i do think that there could be another commercial rock apex. I, I agree with you completely on that. Now, one thing that always happens is that when we uh, we set up interviews is that we're always hoping we can kind of get a headline on you know websites so that interview can get out there and, and everything can work in the favor of the artists that we're supporting. But how do you feel about getting the headlines for your artists? Because a lot of time now they're going to be, the, the bigger the story is going to be kind of transcribed and not exactly what was in context in like the interview. How do you feel about that? Are you basically saying how I feel about clickbait? Yeah, that's exactly what I think. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was running around that question about clickbait. But yeah, how do you feel about clickbait when they do that to your artists? Well, it depends because, you know, clickbait, you know, I understand why websites and, and media outlets do that. They want to get people to come to their site, click on what they're, the headline, and then can read the story and get the full story. Because obviously the headline is always supposed to be, you know, what's going to grab you and pull you in, but in this digital day and age when everybody's you know trying to get the clicks you know some of my some of my colleagues call it a race to the bottom you know i want to get it up first and it doesn't matter if it's right or not and sometimes i think you know you have to think about what's journalistically fact-checked ethical and correct first but a lot of people don't don't do that you know and that's you know if they choose to do things that's way that way it's the way they do it but i think if a headline is misleading um i think it's frustrating for the reader because if they click on it thinking they're going to find something else out and it has nothing to do with the headline well i'll be like i'd be pretty pissed that i clicked on it i hate when i look at those websites where it's like see what this person looks like now and you click on it and the person's never even in the list you're like wait a minute why i just did i just get duped you know so it's like did i just fall for a clickbait and i did and i understand why it happens you know people are you know it's a very fast consumption things are going to disappear on the web as fast as they arrive on it but I do think that the headline is inaccurate or if it's got a connotation that could be damaging, well, then sometimes I have to do damage control and fix it. Hey, you know, that's not really correct, you know, or that's not insinuating or, or suggesting something else. But for the most part, I think as long as the, if the story has the facts in it, that's what I'm really concerned about correcting or making sure that something sensitive or off the record didn't make it into a piece. That's really what I'm mostly focused on, just to make sure that information about the artist is correct. And that the artist's image is protected and properly conveyed. Has there ever been a situation where you had to do damage control for an artist that was in the wrong? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there have been. Not so much in the wrong, but just I, I've worked with the artists that have, uh, you know, might have been arrested or have done jail time. And sometimes people assume that, like, I had one artist that everybody assumed because they did jail time that they killed somebody and they didn't. That wasn't it. It was a probation thing. You know what I mean? It was a example was made of them for, for something else. So it's just like sometimes I have to respond to people and say, no, they, they did not kill somebody. You know what I mean? So you're just like, sometimes there have been 
you know, I would like to believe that most of the people that you work with are, you know, are good people, but sometimes, you know, there's rumors that get out there and sometimes you just have to work with the artist to make sure that you get their facts out there and that you get the, that the story is correct and that they get a chance to tell their story. And if there's something where somebody did something wrong, you know, you're, you hope that they're truly remorseful and that they're doing everything that they can to be, to actually be remorseful and to be redeemed. So nothing on a level where I had to answer for something that they did, or, but there have been times where it's in a, just a crisis PR world where sometimes you have to just help them get the right message that they want out there. It's like if they're apologetic or they are remorseful or they have done something or they just want to set the record straight, you know, that's all careful messaging that you work with them because you want to make sure that they put their best foot forward when they go to talk about it. Cause you have to remember they're all humans to, at the end of the day. Absolutely not. Something I, I completely agree with on every level. It's like people always forget the human element of mistakes and, and journeys. Oh, but- yeah. It's like in this age, you have to just remember that humans can make mistakes. You know, I always try to say this when I work, I work with a um, volunteer at a dog shelter um, on weekends and I work with um, homeless dogs and some who have been through really bad situations and some that just get dumped off because their owners don't want them anymore because they're old or whatever. And I sometimes tell people who say, I can't believe people would do this to dogs because I can't believe it either. But I tell people, you have to remember that sometimes really good people do a shitty thing and sometimes really shitty people can do good things and sometimes really shitty people can do shitty things. And you just have to like be able to kind of be cognizant enough of the difference and go from there. And that's how I try to approach things. That's actually really good because yeah, everything is a case by case situation. Now, the dogs, though, if you're helping out these dogs, how many dogs do you own? Do you ever take them home? Because I would take home, like, all of them. <laughs> it's very difficult. I have two dogs. I have my dog, Higgins, who is a bulldog. Um, he, uh, I got him when he was a baby. I got him from a breeder, and I've had him for, since he was eight weeks old, and he's nine. And then I rescued his brother, who he hates, which is Titus. He was found wandering the streets of Camden uh, in really bad shape last summer. Like, a bulldog out in the heat is not a good, uh, not a recipe for anything good. And he was wandering around by himself and his feet were swollen to like two times the size because he was probably stepping on glass and on that hot cement walking around and no respite and the first day I met him he was a total mess and I was like oh, I'm gonna bring him home just for a sleepover you know just gonna foster him for a night and let him sleep over and Higgins was not interested in him but he stayed over for one night and then we just kept him because <laughs> he was just you know I have a thing for bulldogs but he just needed I, I you know he needed me and, and I and saving him and rescuing him you know he's taught me more about survival and and forgiveness and, and how to kind of get over the hump than any person ever could. That's, that's a great point you brought up. I always feel like I have a kid right now and he's three and I'm like, I'm learning more from just being around him. And then before that, oh, yeah, I'm sure. I would have dogs and that's the same feeling I got is cause there's just this like simplistic joy that comes to it. And it's like being around that's so vital. I always look at it cause when people say, how do you not take them home? Cause I'm like, well, first of all, I would have, you know, a house full of dogs, but I look at it as like my work with them is to help them like be comfortable and safe and, and their minds occupied and, and, and keep them somewhat happy until they get to their next spot. Cause at the shelter, that's just their temporary bunking, you know, it's their pit stop on their way to their, to where they're going for good, you know, which is the forever home. So, you know, I look at my role is just to make the time that I spend with them to make it happy and keep them as de-stressed as possible because, you know, living in a shelter, some of, you know, I try to say they're all roommates, but some dogs don't really adjust to it very well. So that's just what I, how I look at it. Yeah, no, I, I actually got my last dog, Amos, from the shelter, and he was the calmest, most peaceful dog. And the second I got him at home, it was terror. I love him, though. He's, <laughs> he's, he's bad. He was the quietest dog in the shelter. But I think it's because he was yeah. just little. 
right? So, Probably. Yeah. I always find that the little guys, the little guys have the biggest attitude because they're like, wait, I don't have much size. I need to like throw my weight around. Yeah, no, the theory of every dog thinks they're a pit bull, I, I think, is, is how I say it. They don't, they don't realize that there's a size thing until they get bit. They're like, okay, that wasn't cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, to me, I think the most challenging thing for you, Amy, is, is getting new artists some leverage and press in this modern climate. Is it extremely hard to do that these days? Press is a hard job, yes, because you have to um, – Really accept the fact that nine times out of ten you're going to get a no before you get a yes. You have to, you know, you're you're you have to be okay with rejection because you're going to have a lot of that. And sometimes it's really going to have to suck it up if somebody does not believe in or like click with the artist the way you have, and you know that they should, and you know that you have something special that you're working with, and you go, man, just why isn't this clicking? You know, and it, it happens, and sometimes things just don't click with the media, but. In this day and age, you know, you always have to be adapting. I mean, doing press now is completely different from when I started. You know, in the beginning, it was like there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of print outlets or hundreds of radio radio shows across the country that played metal on commercial and college stations. And a lot of that stuff has dried up and now everything is online. And, you know, there's a lot more outlets out there and there's a lot of things that are kind of like, you know, you have to. There, there's only so much time in a day and the bands only have, have so much time. So, you know, I try to work with our developing bands on with developing outlets. And I always say, why don't you guys come up together? Like there's something really rewarding in being the first person to cover a band. And, you know, as that band continues to grow, you can say, Hey man, I covered that before everybody else did, you know? So there, there's a lot of outlets out there. So it's a matter of vetting a lot of stuff and seeing what actually has value. Cause sometimes people just throw together a website because they want to, you know, go to a show, you know, and it's like, there's not content or it's not updated or it's not content that anybody's seeing, you know? So there has to be, you know, in order to be a tastemaker, in order to be an authority on this, you have to have some kind of a following too. So there's a lot of work that goes into vetting and running metrics, analytics, stuff like that. You know, some people think, oh, well, I've made a request, you know, I just should get it. And that's just not how it works. You know, it's a very, there's a lot more that goes into, you know, press. And I always tell people that, you know, publicity and public relations, you know, public relations is the tree and publicity is the branch. Interviews is a branch. Turning down interviews is a branch. Saying no to press, maintaining mystique. Those are all branches of that same tree. People don't realize that sometimes turning down press and keeping an artist out of the media by just not having them talk, it increases their mystique and increases the intrigue. But it also, and it makes people want them more. And some, that's a full-time job just as much as pitching and setting up interviews is. I really like what you just said because I've actually said many times that the mystique of artists is is less and less. Like I remember so many of them. I'll use Tool as an example. Like I didn't even know what those guys looked like till Record Four. You know, like right, I, I would right. see them live and it would be like Maynard would be you know face painted and all that stuff. But that mystique was such a part of their brand. You know, and yeah. I think it's harder to do that now for some reason but maybe i'm wrong because i feel like every band's much more open like when we talk about slipknot same thing when we didn't know who they were and there were people pretending to be Corey taylor at bars you know across the world because he wore a mask yeah. like like that that helped them and when he you know when he did stone sour that was like a big yeah. concern everybody had that you know Corey's going to be unmasked and people are going to see what him and jim look like but here we had stone sour which was a band that was going gold and had a major major cross-format single with father you know so that became like how do we do this and then there's i've had you know other bands where you know 
I have a couple of artists who they just talk to very limited press because they've done it all or because they just only want to talk to certain press and that's their right. You know, it also just keeps the intrigue going. You know, Monty Connor, who, you know, signed all these amazing bands at Roadrunner over the years. I don't even think I need to introduce who he is or say what he has done. He said to me a long time ago, he's like, you know, when I wanted to know what Steven Tyler was doing before a sold out show at Madison Square Garden, I would pick up Cream Magazine or Hip Parader and read the interview that he did before before the show. Nowadays, all you have to do is like go on Instagram or Twitter and that's and every dude in a band is tweeting what, you know, pictures of their lunch. So there's like sometimes that that unfettered access can kind of take away some of that mystique, too. And it, it, it lifts the curtain a little bit. And I think sometimes it's good to still have that. It's still good to, like, maintain a, a little bit of that intrigue and un, and not being available. The big rock band that's that's going up right now that's going to do Arenas as Ghost and the same thing, that mystique was a huge factor in their, their rise right, through right. the years and, and all that stuff. And then, yeah, now that Tobias is unmasked, it, it doesn't hurt him, but I think there's a certain point where it's fine, just like, like you know, Kiss or something way back in the day. I think it's fine, but it's that in, initial, like, who is this guy that I think is so important? But then right. I, on the flip side, I, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of saying like a gimmick is very important to rise through music. I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you think there's some truth to that? I think yes and no, because I think I, I don't look at Slipknot as wearing masks and having numbers and, and wearing uniforms as a gimmick because it was very, very, you know, it was very specific and everything had meaning and reason. Mm -hmm. And it kind of factored into just their whole story. But there have been gimmicky bands that haven't worked. You know, I won't like name any of them, but I'm sure we, we could probably think of a bunch, you know, but a lot of them, those don't work. And I think that could be just something doesn't connect or maybe it's the music, but there are a lot of gimmicks that don't go anywhere. I think I don't think it is necessary because if you look at somebody like a band like Vane, they had no gimmick at all other than, you know, just the music that connected two very different styles, you know, which is like the, the really crazy spastic noise of like Converge with a little bit of that new metalness of Corn, and it just blew people away, you know? So that was like no gimmick right there. It was just what they were making, the music they were making, and it just caught fire. So I don't think you need to rely on a gimmick. I think you just have, it really has to be the music. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Now, let me ask you this. Does it does it make it harder for you to enjoy music working in the industry as long as you have? No, because I still, like, love going to shows, and I still listen to music on my free time. You know, there's times where it's a lifestyle, not a job, and there's certain things where I'm just like, oh, my God, I just want to not be answering emails at 9 o'clock at night or not getting bombarded by emails. But, you know, I don't go to as many shows as I used to. I, I tend to cut back a little bit now and go to the stuff that I really want to go to that I, that I got to go to for work or stuff that I really love. But there was a period there when I was like, you know, I think I saw Stained and Buck Cherry at every single venue in Manhattan when they were coming up. Cause I just went to, it was part of my job just to be at shows every night and, you know, liaison liaising with labels and stuff like that when I worked at CMJ. And then at Roadrunner, I still went to a ton of shows, but I also went to a lot of my bands I would go see Machine Head in Washington, D.C. or Philly or in Boston or Connecticut. So it was just, you know, all stuff that I still loved. Like a lot of times when I did radio at Roadrunner, when we would have like six or seven bands, you know, or five bands on OzFest, like they would send me out on the weekends to cover all those weekend OzFest shows, whether it was like, you know, Appleton, Wisconsin, and then Minneapolis and Chicago, or it could have been Massachusetts, Connecticut, Philly, Boston, Jersey, you know, in DC, I would cover all those and take care of all the meet and greets and take care of all, you know, the stuff that had to happen there. And I loved doing it because it was like, you know, a lot of the 
radio regionals, you know, they had families or they had their kids and stuff on weekends. So they'd be like, oh, can Amy go out and cover it? And I loved it. I was like the time of my life. I got to travel. I was always, you know, just, I was the person with the clipboard and the headset making sure Slipknot did their meet and greets. So, uh, and I loved it. It was really exciting, you know? So I wouldn't say that it, you know, affects me how I listen to music. There's still things that I love to listen to. You know, I listen to all genres. Metal is my favorite and what I prefer, but I'm still always constantly discovering stuff. So no, it doesn't, if anything, it just makes my access more um, available and I find things quicker. No, I feel the same way. I, I get so many promos that I'm like, I, I I have to stop myself from listening because I want just the musical knowledge of who they are. But yeah, of course. Uh, but every time I find something, I'm like gold, you know. So there's still that 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 excitement of that whole process. Um, yeah, it's it's great because I was worried about that. I was worried. I'm like, you're gonna over listen because there's kind of a snowstorm these days with just so much media at you, you know. And there is, there is like it's the same thing on the on the reverse. Like I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know, I I get triple the amount of requests than I. Um, you know, for photo passes than I ever did, you know, I'm talking like 40 to 50 a day, you know, across bands. And that's a lot of time that you have to process that stuff. You know, whereas in the past it was like, man, I'm only really working with the media that's doing interviews or reviews. So things have changed that way too, you know, and it's just that there's so much stuff that's landing on my desk and in my inbox that sometimes I just don't, you know, there's not enough hours in the day for sure. You know, I wish there was a little bit more of some kind of quality control and policing of things, but you know, there, it, it just isn't, you know, and I'm always happy to try to help up and comers get their first chance where I can with developing artists, you know, but it's not always easy. You know, there's like six layers of approval that go into things. So sometimes I feel like people don't understand that element of the job either. It's not just sitting here waiting for people to ask me for stuff. I got to be the one asking people for stuff. Yeah. The, the back and forth. Now I was going to, that was going to lead me to the next question. How difficult is it for anybody in the music industry to work like an eight hour day these days? Oh my God. I haven't done an eight hour day probably since like <laughs> since the late nineties. I wish that you know, it's just because you're working with people on the East Coast, West Coast, or you're working with people in Europe, or you're working with people in other countries. And, you know, something's always happened. Somebody's photo pass got screwed up. Somebody drops you a line, you know, because you're friendly with a lot of people and you have longstanding relationships with um, some writers or photographers. Sometimes they'll just drop you a line just to see how you're doing. And, you know, it's after hours. You know, I've been at football games on a Sunday with my dad and I'm getting messages about work stuff. And it's not always you know, the opportunity time, you could be on a date, you could be out, you could be getting, you know, you could be going out and getting your annual doctor checkup, you know, so there is sometimes not a, not a lot of division there, where I think there sometimes should be, but, you know, you work with people really closely, and, you know, I enjoy most of the people I work with, so I don't usually mind it, but um, it is, you know, there, there is not a lot of less than 10 to 12 hour days, you know, but I do that now because I'm hoping, you know, in three or four years, because I have staff who works for me, you know, that I'll be able to, you know, work four days and then, you know, kind of leave them in charge and, and taking care of stuff, not in charge, but, you know, they're autonomous and, and they're getting their work done and they're doing things and making stuff happen where I can kind of assume a more like overseeing role, you know? Yeah, no, that sounds... That sounds perfect. Eventually, you've got to, to move that way. But it's going to be so hard for you to let go of the reins. I'm telling you, it's going to be the hardest thing to be like, all right, I'm just going to walk away. And I know, because I'm a control freak as it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I'm always like, I'll just get it done. But I have great people who work for me and work with me. So, you know, I, they do great work. And, you know, I want them to help the company grow that way. It's just there's time where it's like I'm putting in like 80-hour weeks now, so I don't have to do that for the rest of my life. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So let me get you one more question, Amy. I want to thank yeah. you once again so much, man, for calling oh, in thanks for and, having and me. Letting, yeah. letting us chat about this stuff. So has there ever been a point where an artist just constantly sabotaged your efforts and how do you handle that? Oh uh, yeah. And it's always in different ways. And I don't want to say sabotage because that like it has almost, it almost suggests that they're doing it on purpose, but I think artists can get in their own way. Sure. Like whether it's not participating or whether it's just being late or just having their own lives or be their artists, they're creative people. They, their minds work differently than the rest of us. And they're, they got a hundred million things in their brains at once. So sometimes you have to kind of rein them in, you know, that's what I like about it. It's kind of helping, you know, for lack of a better word, babysit their, their ambition. You know, it's my job to help them get where they want to be and get where they need to be and to get the people who need to hear it, to hear it. And sometimes getting them, corralling them into that process because they're the creative person who's going a million miles an hour, you know, that's the challenge. And it's also very exciting too, because you have to figure out ways with how to deal with all different types of personalities. You know, um, that's why, you know, I actually minored in college in psychology. And I believe that a lot of that helped me with just dealing with, you know, different types of personalities so i wouldn't say no that they sabotage it but you do have an artist who sometimes can get in their own way or they can overthink things or they can you know can't get their vision properly aligned with what they want it to be in the media so if you sometimes you have to work with them and talk it out and and have conversations figure out they want to be represented to the media sometimes that takes a little while but um i would say no not there's just you just have to learn how to adjust and you have to learn how to kind of you know adapt to other people's personalities to help them help themselves better. So that's what I kind of see my role as, you know, is just being the person that helps them get their, their vision and their image and their perception out there the way they want it. And that's, that's different for every artist. And it's, there's no set formula for it. You have to really kind of just listen and learn and adjust and adapt accordingly. The human element back around. Exactly. Everybody. Pretty much. It's very, these are all humans to remember at the end of the day, these people, it's people who are creative, who they're very, very protective and, and very, very proud of and, and connected and, and like sensitive about their art. And they should be because that's what it is. It's their art. It's, it's their baby. So, you know, it's just my job to help them kind of navigate how they want to get it out there and how they want to talk to the, to the world about it. So, uh, but yeah, there can be times where there's challenges where, just to get that that process right, sometimes it takes a couple of tries. Amy, I just want to thank you, man. It's so cool to actually have this chat, kind of get something. Yeah, out I there. love it. Thanks. It's, I'm it, sorry that, like I said, I'm all sniffly and congested. I'm sorry. You sounded great. Don't even worry about that. I swear. <laughs> yeah. So I know that it was probably a little little tough because you know a cold. I, I get it. We all get irritated with that. So. But I really just want to thank you so much for calling in here to the Metal Sucks podcast. I love setting up my artist for the Metal Sucks podcast, but it was also fun to be on the other side. All right, guys. And we are back. Such a fun talk, man. Uh, I got to tell you, she's the first person when we were doing Rise to Offend, when we were trying to figure out interviews, she's the first person that gave uh, Sarah was f- trying to get us interviews. She's the per- first person to set us up and give us a chance Aww. to do an interview. Well, so, thank you, Amy. Aww, it's, uh, thank you, Amy. It's great to be able to, to uh, promote her because uh, at that time, it was like, is this going to get anywhere? We don't know. We don't know how many listeners we can do, but like, she gave us a chance, and it was, it was great to get her on the show. All right, guys, on to our list from our email here to continue on. The next two bands are, are much more modern, and we wanted to you know, put a spotlight on some bands that I we've been listening to for, I don't know, the last two or three years excessively from Canada that we think the states need to know about first band is a band called dead quiet they put out a, a record called grand rights in 2017 here is a track off that one this one's called spiritual abuse
All right. And last of our four Canadian obscure bands in the States that we appreciate. Canadian <laughs> obscure bands in the States. No, no, no. The last of the obscure Canadian bands that we Americans are trying is to this, expose. Is this TRL? From Las Vegas. Yeah, from Las Vegas. Is this Las- TRL in 2250? What, oh my God. What I'm going to tell you. We ran out of topics? Yeah, Pete gets word salad, and I'm like, where the hell I are you going with this? topics? <laughs> that was just a weird way to say yeah, it. The last of the Canadian so bands in the America that's in North America, that's part of a continent. Alaska's in Canada. It's not America. Of, uh, <laughs> I appreciate our family. Man's input, taking care of them. Oh well, no, we appreciate know. it too. We yeah, just we're so, telling you that you said it dumb. Yeah. And, uh, and the in the question, hey, the question merits uh, an episode. It That's does. The way he, I see it. He's right. Yeah. So the last band that we want to talk about, guys, that we think not a lot of Americans may know or may not, is the band called Beyond Creation. They have been putting out excellent records, but they put out a, a record called Algorithm at the end of last year, and I got it late. Probably would have made our best of list because it's such an excellent record. Here's the title track to that record, Algorithm.
And that's all. That's no. all I got. So Canada, you now know that the MS podcast loves Canada. Okay. Yeah. And next week we're going to, um, one of those bands I named earlier, one of those bands, I'm going to give you guys a heads up that I named earlier that, uh, is not obscure. We will be interviewing next week. Bare naked for ladies. You, Canada. <laughs> chicken for you, Canada. Chinese chicken. Yeah. In one week. <laughs> the metal sucks podcast is signing off. This is the Jabberjaw podcast network.